and welcome to episode 24 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Artie Bedegheri, a freelance journalist in Canberra, the capital of Australia. This interview kind of fell into my lap. A few episodes back, I described how I'd seen a sudden surge in listenership in Australia. After a bit of internet sleuthing, it turned out that our show had been recommended on an Australian Broadcasting Corporation radio program called Saturday Extra. The journalist with a hot recommendation was Artie, so of course I had to have her on the podcast. We took the show to many interesting new places, and no, I'm not just talking about the fact that finally someone, anyone, had something bad to say about the movie Spotlight. We talk about power imbalances in the Australian media, both in the extreme concentration of media ownership in the country, but also more generally in the imbalance in the work relationships between freelancers and their bosses. I also couldn't resist asking about the bushfires, which were close to Canberra where she lives. And of course, there are tales of foreign correspondence. In this case, how she quit her job as a successful television news presenter to go all in on freelancing in India for roughly eight years, where she was Monocle's woman in India and worked for a slew of other publications. And before we get into that, I just want to highlight that our next episode will be our one-year anniversary. Thank you so much for all the support and sticking with us as we got off the ground. I'll have more to say about that next episode, so stay tuned. So now, on to the show. Here's my conversation with Artie Bedegheri, a freelance journalist in Canberra, Australia. Yeah, first of all, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Just to start uh, to warm up a little bit, if you could set the scene a bit for me and our listeners about where you are geographically and also physically, if you're in your house or where you are, what time it is, and maybe a little bit about what the last week or so has been like for you in terms of work, especially. Things are really in a state of flux and change here as with the rurals. I'm in my house in Canberra, Australia. Canberra is the capital of Australia. It's about two or three hours drive inland from Sydney. Not many people have heard of it. It has an interesting reputation. I suppose it's a pretty bureaucratic city like other capital cities around the world. It's compared a lot to Brussels and places in Switzerland, which are very geographically beautiful, but very functional cities, very created and not a lot of creativity or it's not very dynamic. I'm from Melbourne originally, which is Australia's second largest city. And I lived in Sydney for a long time as well. So it was a bit of a surprise to move to Canberra, which I did a few years ago when I moved here from back home from India. The last week has been quite mad in Australia. I've had my regular column with the Lowy Institute that I've had to do. Apart from that, while I've been chasing work, I think a lot of editors here have gone into shutdown mode. They're not commissioning anything. They're not able to commission. Their budgets are pretty straightened already. So it'll be interesting to see what's ahead for us freelancers in Australia. Yeah, well, I had thought at least as long as you were writing something about coronavirus, editors would still be keen to get it. But I guess they're already reacting to what they foresee as the economic hardship to come. Do you think that's it? I think it's a combination. I think it's that. They're panicking because no one knows what's ahead. And the other thing is that a lot of them are transitioning to working from home and having technological issues and their usual workload is what they can actually manage. It's their capacity. That's the message I've received from editors who've turned my stories down, they say. Wow. I feel like everybody's throwing themselves at coronavirus. Uh, Journalists, at least, have you had to write any coronavirus stories yet? I have. It's my usual monthly column 
problem with the interpreter is about India or about something in South Asia. And I last week pitched a piece that was kind of a, a more lighthearted, funny look at the state of TV news. But then my editor said, okay, sure, but top it with coronavirus and what's happening in India with coronavirus. And that ended up taking over the whole piece, which I'm very glad of. It was just published a few hours ago. And I think it's timely, topical. It's a fun read and it is still really relevant. I don't think there's much appetite right now for anything that's not coronavirus related, which is a shame because I've got a few big feature ideas. I've been sitting on for a while. I was ready to pitch around and now they're on the back burner for a few more months. Yeah, tell me about it. I thought I had a couple of slam dunk environmental stories I was going to do, but I know how that goes. And I've yeah, had to pivot and write a couple of coronavirus stories. Suddenly I'm a health reporter calling up epidemiologists, something I've never done before. So well, the Amazon would be great for self-isolation, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then we'd like to get an idea of how you got to where you are today. And to start, we start at the very beginning with where were you born? If you could tell us a little bit about what growing up was like and a little bit about school, and especially if you started to get an interest in journalism in school. If it didn't happen till later, that's fine. So I was born and raised in Melbourne. My parents were immigrants from India. My father was a doctor. My mother was a teacher, but really a stay-at-home wife and mother. And they both had, a like most immigrants, but particularly those from India, a very cautious outlook, a very cautious worldview. And, you know, they were very big on security and choosing a career that was very secure. So they really did kind of direct me towards either medicine or dentistry or law or engineering. They were kind of always the very acceptable career paths for Indian children. I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to do something a bit more vibrant and a bit more interesting. And I don't remember this, but I caught up with an old friend a few years ago and her mother said, yeah, I remember you when you're a child. You always said you wanted to be either a journalist or a politician. I don't know where the politician (laughs) came from. But yeah, apparently since I was very young, I wanted to be a journalist, but I don't remember that. Although when I went to university, I studied a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism as my undergrad. I'm currently back at uni now studying a Master's of International Relations. And my first job, so Australia's got a very strange media scene. It's mostly quite commercial, quite status quo. It aims to inform a certain segment of the audience by only telling them what they want to hear. So there's only really a few corners that Uh, a bit more progressive and cutting edge. And one of those is the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is where I always wanted to work. Um, Sorry, just to hold up, you had done your undergrad in journalism? I did, yes, at RMIT, which is at the time was the only dedicated journalism course in Melbourne. There's quite a lot now. It was really difficult to get into. It was very selective. What do you think gave you the drive to go after something competitive like that? I mean, had you done it earlier in high school or earlier, or was there anything that hooked you in particular? I didn't get the marks to get into studying law, and I did really want to be a journalist. I had done a few pieces in high school, and one of them ended up in this. It was like the broadsheet for Melbourne was the age. It's now shrunk in size and it's been taken over by a TV company. But, you know, it was very prestigious back then in the 90s. It had a lot more money than it does now. So they would do these things for students, like wraparounds, like kind of an outer layer of the newspaper where it was all student content. So I got a few pieces into that and then ended up at like an education seminar at the age. And I just found it so exciting and glamorous that I just thought, oh, I need to do this. I need to be here. I never went to work at the age in the end. Out of university, I started doing work experience at 
Australia's second government channel. It's called SBS. It probably doesn't have much of a profile abroad, but it should because it's really interesting. So it's quite small. And it was set Mm -hmm. up in the 70s by the government of the day who realised that we had all these new migrants coming into Australia who didn't necessarily have very strong English language skills. So they started up the then new universal healthcare system, Medicare, and they needed to convey the information about it to all these people who didn't speak English. They decided to set up a broadcaster that was broadcasting in as many different languages as possible. And SBS Radio still does that, while SBS TV does world news. It shows news programs from around the world. And I suppose the the other direction it goes in is to be a bit more cutting edge with the movies and the TV shows it shows. So for example, it was the TV network that showed uh, Handmaid's Tale before anyone else did. So it's a really interesting little broadcaster. I started out there at SBS Radio. I first started as just work experience. I did two weeks and then I just said, I'm going to keep coming in. So I was doing that for one or two days a week while doing part-time jobs and you know various other things and then my bosses found me bits and pieces of paid work and that just ramped up progressively over a few months to the point where I was a full-time casual and I stayed there for about three years and then decided to move on because I felt like there was a real limit to what you could do there. Any highlights from SBS you want to share? Yes. So while I was at SBS, so the thing that a lot of my colleagues would do is they'd go on holidays overseas and they'd take a recording kit. We didn't use iPhones back then or a mini disc. They'd take it overseas on holidays with them and do a story from overseas. So then, you know, they were doing a bit of work and piquing their curiosity and also you know, getting a bit of money back while they were on holidays. I was quite young. I was in my early 20s, I think 21. And My family was going to India for a family wedding, so I took a mini-disc recorder and went to India. And I travelled around a bit on my own, and I decided to do a story about AIDS and how the the country was dealing with AIDS. And it was the most eye-opening experience. You know, before then, I just thought of India as the place where my parents came from, a bit boring. You know, I felt very cloistered when I was there. I was always in the family unit, which, you know, my my extended family is quite cosmopolitan, but their worldview is a little... um, it's not very progressive. So I ended up traveling around. I went to Delhi and I interviewed this AIDS activist from an organization called the NAS Foundation. And I ended up spending about three days with these activists and it was the most eye-opening experience. You know, the activists themselves were so exciting to me. They were really progressive. They had this incredible global experience and worldview. I just learned so much by being in their realm for those few days. I realized, oh my God, there are so many interesting stories in this country to tell. You know, my eyes are opened. I I really need to one day come back here and tell all these stories properly. You know, it really planted the seed in me to one day go back to India and explore it properly. So this plants a seed, but I gather you stayed in Australia for a bit longer after SBS before making the move to India. What what happened next in your career? I did a few different things. I worked for Street Press. I worked for a few websites, startups, entertainment websites. I worked for Australia's Newswire, which is called AAP. And I'd already moved to Sydney by this stage. I ended up back at SBS, but this time working in television. And I ended up on air doing television news breaks, which was was pretty great. I really enjoyed doing that, even though I started at six every morning. And from there, I got a job at the ABC. They were ramping up their foreign news offerings. It kind of operates the same way as BBC World. It was called ABC Asia Pacific, ABC, the Australian network. So it broadcasts to 
Asia, everywhere from Fiji through to Afghanistan, so a very, very large geographical area. So I got a job there, and after a few months, I ended up on air as a newsreader. So I ended up staying there for a few years because it's really hard to turn that down. But in the back of my mind, I always knew I really wanted to get overseas. And it got to a point where things were going too well. I felt very settled and very comfortable in my job. I was nearly married. I just thought, oh, if I don't go now, I'll just get really comfortable and I'll settle in and I'll never get overseas. And at this stage, I was thinking I would go anywhere. But when I looked into it, I thought, actually, I can get a visa really easily to India. Why don't I start there? And I spoke to my husband and he agreed. So we got our visas, sold all my possessions, quit our jobs and off we went. And at that stage, I was just thinking we'd do a year or two. And I really wanted to live in Bombay because that's where my mother had come from. And every time I'd been to Bombay, I'd look through the curtains and see this amazing, vibrant, exciting city outside that I wasn't able to be part of. So you uproot and you move to Bombay, Mumbai, And I guess what was your plan going in, really? I had no plan. I wanted to take a bit of a break, to be honest, because I'd been working in pretty hardcore demanding jobs for more than 10 years, and I hadn't really had a break, and I was a bit burnt out. And I'd spent a lot of time inside newsrooms and inside offices, and I just felt like I hadn't done the fieldwork that I really wanted to do, and I hadn't had the experiences that I wanted. So I had a loose idea of what I wanted to do. I originally thought I'd get a job at Reuters or one of the wire services, but really I just wanted to take some time out, do some yoga, travel, and just have a life. Sure. So that was the, the rough plan. And I did that for about nine months, which was great, six to nine months. And then my husband got a job in New Delhi, so we decided that was worth going after. That was at Dow Jones because he was at the time a journalist as well. So we moved to New Delhi, which was not part of the plan at all. And Bombay felt very comfortable. I felt very familiar with it. You know, I spent a lot of time there, you know, on holidays as a child and throughout my life. But I'd been in Delhi once for three days or something. And I found it quite alien then. And I found it really alien this time around. I didn't speak the language. I didn't know the customs. I didn't know the rituals. I didn't know the codes. And there are a lot of unspoken codes in Delhi to learn. So it was incredibly alien and very alienating as well. Huh, yeah, and Delhi, remind me, speaks mostly Hindi there, and in the south it's more, uh, Mumbai is more Bengali? No, the south is, well, there are dozens of languages, and I think 16 officially recognised languages, and there's a lot of tension between languages and regions. You know, everyone's kind of fighting for primacy. So broadly in the south they speak English, Broadly in the north, they speak Hindi. Tamil is a very prominent language in the south, but it's not universally spoken, only really in Tamil Nadu. But Tamil speakers will refuse to speak Hindi. And other South Indian language speakers will not touch Hindi. Uh, (laughs) In the north, they think their English language skills aren't as developed, so they focus more on regional and sub-regional languages and Hindi. Linguistically, India is a melting pot, and it's also really interesting, all the politics and the dynamics around languages and around who speaks what and dead and dying languages. I had a friend who was a linguist who spent a lot of time up at the border in the Himalayas, the border with China, and she was doing a lot of research into this one particular language that was dying out. And part of the reason it was dying out was someone who'd grown up in the village, she'd spent a lot of time abroad, came back and set up an English language school thinking that was the right thing to do to give his cohorts English language skills. But because of that, they were losing the actual local Indigenous language. 
Huh. And I imagine what this means for your work. I mean, did you have to, for various stories, wrangle different translators for any number of different languages in order to be able to pull it off? Or how did it affect your work? Look, most of my work was in English. There were frequent times when I came into contact with people I couldn't communicate with. I had pretty rudimentary Hindi, so I could manage to get by. If I was somewhere regional, I usually hired a translator and fixer, which is also a good security move as well, to be quite honest, to have someone who knew the lay of the land with you. But most of the time, I didn't really need anything but English. And there's also kind of a hierarchical element as well. Locals will respect you more if you only speak English in some cases, which is really strange and counterintuitive, but that's just the reality that I found. Yeah, that's pretty different than in China, where, yeah, speaking language is a big part of breaking in as a reporter a lot of the time. And I mean, it's just the culture there is the opposite of India in some (laughs) respects. That is just so monolithic, like everybody knows Mandarin and, you know, it's kind of a one size fits all. Everybody's educated Mandarin. And then, oh yeah, tell me a bit about how you broke into freelancing, like how you got going and for which publications and how long it kind of took you to get up and running. So freelancing. A week before I moved to Bombay, I was in London and I got a little text message to say something's happening in Bombay where you're planning to move in a week. And I looked at the news and I saw that the terrorist attacks had happened And I didn't know it then, but that ended up changing my early experience. Some of the first people I met were journalists or the spouses of journalists who were living there who had really, really struggled during that time, during the siege, you know, with just the information vacuum and all the false news that was flying around. And Just just to remind us, this is the siege of the hotel. Where was it again? And what exactly happened? There was a movie made about it. What was it called? <laughs> I've forgotten. Hotel Mumbai with Dev Patel. So you may may not recall in 2008, cross-border terrorists landed in Bombay in boats and they fans out across the city to heavily populated sites like the main train station and also the Taj Mahal Hotel, which is the city's iconic hotel. And the siege on the hotel lasted days. People couldn't leave their rooms because they didn't know where the terrorists were and dozens of people died, policemen. It was a pretty terrifying time. It was a pretty terrifying experience. And when I arrived, that was just a few weeks after that had happened and people were quite traumatised who I met. And in particular, the journalists found themselves with all sorts of expectations, for example, to try to break into the hotel, whatever means necessary, but were completely unprepared and untrained for this. So I made up my mind pretty early that I wasn't going to find myself in that situation. Like I wouldn't agree to any dangerous assignments without certain conditions. And the other thing was that, actually, this is when I first moved to Delhi. I had dinner with a Canadian correspondent who was telling me about how a New York Times reporter at the time had been taken hostage. And he was a freelancer, so I think the paper were, basically they were taking a bit of a back seat and trying to get him out. There was a pretty hefty ransom that was being demanded and it was just up to his family to either meet the ransom demands or to keep agitating and to keep on the case. And I got quite worried about this. I thought, well, journalists aren't really looked after that well in the field by their employers and in fact Mm -hmm. some cases their employers are demanding that they do certain things that 
put their lives at risk, for example, during the siege. So I decided very early on that I wouldn't do anything that was going to be too dangerous. And I regretted that during my years in India because I really desperately wanted to do risky assignments. And in one case, I almost did one. But as a freelancer particularly, there are very, very few protections I just thought, do I really want to do that to my family? So what sort of publications were you working for? And could you give us a sample of what sort of stuff you would mostly do? Did you do a lot on culture? Did you do a lot on politics? Was there any particular niches you were exploring as a freelancer? So I, as I said, I ended up freelancing and I really loved it. I thought it was just the best balance of pursuing stories that I was really interested in, working for different publications, and also because I did print and online and radio and TV. It just meant that I could do different things every assignment and still feel like it was fresh and new and innovative in some way. So I started out writing a lot for the Christian Science Monitor, which is a Boston-based publication. I think it was all online by that stage. That focuses pretty heavily and invests pretty heavily in foreign news reporting. So I wrote a lot for them and I really enjoyed writing for them. I found them to be really professional but also laid back and really great communication. They were very polite in their dealings with me, which I always appreciate. You always appreciate that as a freelancer when people write you nice emails. And then I started writing for Monocle magazine, which is a London-based magazine from the same founder as the magazine Wallpaper. So I started writing for them and I was just doing bits and pieces, you know, a few online pieces, just some of their in briefs. I think I must have written something that got huge traffic. So one day I woke up and I had an email from the editor saying, will he please be our New Delhi correspondent? And of course I said, yes, <laughs> straight away. So I ended up doing most of my work, probably about 75% of my work over the years was for Monocle in various different ways. So they've got the magazine, but then they were growing pretty fast at that stage. They were doing different media properties. They did books. They had an online radio station. So I did a lot of radio as well. I did some video for them. I did some work for their sister company, which is a branding agency called Wink Creative. Now, I don't know how many people are familiar with Monocle. The print publications kind of, it's a very, very large magazine. <laughs> is, is that the one I'm thinking of? You say large, Jake. I say it lasts a month. <laughs> <laughs> I always describe it as the economist for hipsters. And it is That's also, good, yeah. it's also, like, it's known for its really high design values. And in fact, the design of it's being ripped off all over the place. So I think people buy it because they think it's a design magazine or make them look cool to be seen to be reading it. But it's actually a business magazine and it's a small business magazine. So when sure. it first started up, the founder actually, from what I understand, he got some seed capital from people who had family businesses. So they wanted there to be a strong focus on family businesses and manufacturing in the magazine. And Tyler is also a very visual person and with a great sense of attention to detail. So you see a lot of beautiful photo layouts of, say, coffee making or cheese making or whatever. So companies that produce something that has got tangible value. One of the bits of advice I got with pitching was never to pitch anything digital, nothing cloud-based. <laughs> but you want something that they could see and touch and photograph and would make for really meaningful visuals. So I understood the parameters of what they wanted pretty quickly. And I pitched heaps and heaps and probably about one in five or one in 10 pieces got in. But I did some amazing stories with 
Monocle. I'm so grateful forever to the magazine for giving me the opportunities to do what I did. That's very interesting. And I've seen Monocle. I've picked it up. I've looked through it. I mean, it's one of those things that it seemed like kind of a curiosity. And I guess it had interesting stuff in it, but I didn't understand the guiding philosophy of it. Like what sort of stuff would you do for it? So it's a magazine that is read by people around the world who have their own businesses or want to start their own businesses and probably want to invest in regions outside of the main centres. So are looking for parts of the world that are perhaps, and I use this word very carefully, but underexploited. So they're looking for business opportunities around the world. That was one of my own personal guiding principles. And I found that in spades in India at the time when I was there. India had a pretty high growth rate of up to 10% a year or you know, projections are up to 10% a year. India is very young. I think the median age is like 28. It's pretty dynamic and it's very, very entrepreneurial because people have to be entrepreneurial because there are no safety nets or no meaningful safety nets. So I found India to be a really perfect match to what the magazine's editorial requirements were. So I'd look around and I'd just see all these little things that I was very familiar with, say, in Australia, but popping up in some sometimes pretty organic ways in people's garages and having a huge impact. For example, a coffee company, you know, most Indians in North India drink tea, but when you get, say, Indians who've studied abroad or lived abroad for a long period of time, as there are many, or expats, they come to a place like Delhi, they want the coffee that they're used to having back home. And, you know, in some cases, if they can't find it in the market, they started up. So I remember this one couple, they'd started up a coffee roastery in their parents' garage and it was doing gangbusters. It was doing so well. Now this company's got a chain of stores around India. They're on every restaurant menu. They've got a real place in the culinary fabric of the country. But at the time when I went to do a story on them, they were just a very early stage startup. So my, my daughter's just walked in. I'm having a BBC dad moment. That's okay. so and that was just one story. There were all these little places popping up all over the country. Really, it was happening in a very ad hoc basis, just in response to what they saw as a demand for something. So it was a really exciting time, you know, and it wasn't corporate led. It was really grassroots. So it sounds like you spent a lot of time, yeah, really getting in touch with the entrepreneurial side of India. Yes, sounds but that like was a very even, cool job. Yeah, it was fantastic. I loved it. But at the same time, the magazine's remit was a bit wider Again, so they were really interested in anything to do with diplomacy, anything to do with well, economics, really, but individual stories that told the wider story. Another story I did, so across the country, there are all these universities called IITs, and they're extremely hard to get into. There's so much demand for places. Like, it's harder to get into there than into Harvard. This guy, a couple of decades ago, started a training institute literally in his garage in a very rural, so-called backward part of India, and I had immense success, like off the charts success. So many of the students ended up getting admission into these IITs. And there were people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds as well. So everyone's very intrigued by his methods and how he manages to do it from a very, very humble place to achieve such success. So I did a story in him. I didn't actually get to go out to him, but it was over the phone. And, and that was a story that I got really positive feedback on. So you wrote for them. Who, who else were you writing for? 
So many places. So I still contributed a bit to Australian media. So the Sydney Morning Herald and the ABC. I wrote a few pieces for the New York Times, for the Wall Street Journal, for Time magazine, for Newsweek, the Middle East edition in particular, Al Jazeera online, The National in Abu Dhabi. Sent a few pieces their way. Wow, that's quite a list, yeah. And then also some Indian publications. There's a really great magazine called The Caravan, which is loosely modelled on The New Yorker, but it's a bit more political and a bit more investigative. I wrote for them a few times. And also another magazine called Motherland and a few other Indian outlets. And I actually really enjoyed writing for Indian media. They paid very badly. But, you know, not having to contextualise what was going on for a global audience, it was so refreshing to be able to do that. And you could dig down and dig a lot deeper into the issues you're exploring. I ended up writing a lot about arts and culture, to be honest, especially for those publications. Are you also a person who does a lot of photography and video when you were doing these projects? Or did you mostly do text? Were you multimedia? I did audio. I actually went to India and found that there weren't any other radio journalists there. Maybe a handful, maybe some staff journalists for NPR. But really, there weren't many people doing radio at all. So I found a real niche there and because Monocle had just started up this online radio station, I ended up contributing heaps, like once a week, to one of the shows on that radio station. I expected that I'd do a lot more video than I did. When I came there, there were a few video journalists, but they were self-contained ones with all their own equipment and they did nothing else. And I just thought, oh, you know what, I'd rather just do print and radio. So it sounds like you had a really good run of it there in India. What made you decide to move back to Australia and how long ago was that? India, while I had a really great time professionally, it was increasingly a difficult place to live, New Delhi in particular. It's extremely hot in summer and the summers seem to be getting hotter and then you'd have monsoon season and you'd get a lot of mosquitoes and virus carrying mosquitoes and then there was a lot of pollution in wintertime. So it just felt like across the whole year it was quite an inhospitable place to live and that didn't matter when it was just me but then I had a baby in 2015 and I quickly realised that the baby couldn't have the same upbringing that I'd had in Australia which was quite outdoorsy and very free and that was something that I really wanted for my child. So I started looking at ways to get back to Australia in 2016 and my husband and I finally did come back to Australia in 2017 so about you know bang on three years this month and like I said we moved to the the capital city Canberra which was new to me I hadn't lived here before and Canberra is a very political city so there's a lot of journalism jobs but they're mostly based around politics or the bureaucracy and I kind of decided that I didn't want to work in that space just because the hours are very long and it's very demanding and when you've got a young family it's just not really conducive to a demanding job. So I have done stints at the ABC locally here and in contract work with various government departments. But for the most part, I am doing a master's degree in international relations at the ANU at the Australian National University, and I still freelance. I've got a monthly column with the Lowy Institute's website, The Interpreter. The Lowy Institute is an Australian foreign affairs think tank. And I freelance elsewhere as well. I had a piece in Time magazine in January based around the bushfires. 
and I get other commissions on an ad hoc basis. So there's not a lot of structure around my career right now, but I'm quite happy with what I'm doing and the way things are going. The Lowy Institute, you said, is a think tank. I guess I'm just a little bit curious about how journalists get linked up with think tanks, because there are a fair number, especially from my experience in China, like there are the <coughs> East West Institute and any number of other think tanks. And journalists usually a decade into their career sometimes will go off and do stints at these places, I guess just ask a very vague question. What exactly is that all about? That's a really interesting question. You know, if you're curious and adventurous and you're interested in the world and you're interested in your personal experience and your country's experience in the context of the world, it just feels like a very natural progression from the the kind of day-to-day journalism that we do earlier on in our careers. When you work for a daily news outlet, whether it's TV or radio or print, you're very focused on what's happening that day and you get very, very skilled at writing a news story and conveying information within a set of parameters. But, you know, a lot of people do get to the point where they want to ask questions more than they want to just record what's going on, what's happened. And I certainly got to that stage, especially when I came back to Australia. I did a bit of reporting here and I found it quite unsatisfying in some ways. The outlet that I was working for at the time, meeting the demands of my bosses, I found it to be quite an unsatisfying experience. So I just thought, you know what, I've always wanted to do a master's degree in international relations. Now's a really good time to do it. And then this opportunity just came out of nowhere with the Lowy Institute. The editor of the publication was looking for someone to write in India, found me on Twitter. I think, and contacted me and I wrote a few things and then he said to make a regular monthly stint. And it's great. I really enjoy it because I'm still really interested in India and South Asia. So it keeps my interests still trained on that part of the world. And I have an opportunity to write about it. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like a great opportunity. Just tell me a little bit about what the freelancing scene is like in Australia. And I'd be curious if you see it as a long-term option Coronavirus has just thrown everything up in the air. No one knows what's going to happen, but to date, the media industry like in Australia, like elsewhere in the world, it's gone through the ringer in the last decade or so. There's been a lot of layoffs, a few closures, and a lot of journalists have gone freelance. And I actually saw this early on and someone I knew reached out to me and said, why don't you join the media union's freelance committee? So I did that. It's about 10 or 15 people and we're just agitating for a bit of change. So right now, freelancers are considered to be sole traders, but we're arguing that we fall into this special category where we have no protections and no real recourse. So for example, just some of the daily frustrations that freelancers face, you get commissioned for a story, you write the story, you deliver it, and then it gets spiked and you don't get paid or you get paid a really minimal kill fee. That's an ongoing frustration for a lot of people. For me, a common one is I get commissioned a certain number of words, being paid per word, then my word count be cut. So I'd put in, say, $1,000 worth of work only to receive three quarters of that at the end of it because they decided for their own editorial layout reasons to cut the word count down. So there are all these frustrations. And I keep saying that other industries use the media to get their message out, but we can't because we're going to be criticising the same publications that we're approaching for work. So we are in a really difficult situation and there's a few of us working for a bit of change or just a bit more regulation of, you know, some recognition of what we're going through. So that's something that I'm really passionate about. The other thing is that As Australia's media contracts, it's not 
very representative. It's becoming less representative. So that's an issue that I'm really interested in. I'd like to do a bit more work around helping to just keep sounding the bell for the need for diversity, cultural, religious, gender, age diversity in the Australian media. And to get some idea, I know very little about the Australian media scene, but that was where Rupert Murdoch got a lot of his first start. Is that right? And is he still a major force in media there? Is it still concentrated in kind of the hands of, I guess, conservatives, I guess I would say? Yeah, Rupert Murdoch still has a very large presence in the Australian media. Australia's got the most concentrated press ownership in the world, and a lot of it is because of the Murdoch media. And the Murdoch media is the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, the Australian newspaper, generally very conservative and strangely influential, even though very few people actually buy and read the Australian newspaper. Very conservative, but also they agitate a lot. They push for certain outcomes, whether it's prime minister or the political party they want, or to certain social issues. For example, climate change denialism is pretty pronounced in the Murdoch media. There's a lot of solid reporting in there as well, but there's there's no doubt that that particular concentration of media ownership is not positive for the Australian media landscape. The Murdoch media is also behind what has been a real push in the last five to ten years to minimise the reach and the impact of Australia's national broadcaster, the ABC. And they've been strangely successful in this. You know, the ABC has had its budget cut numerous times by disapproving governments, mostly right-wing governments. It's been revealed that a certain editorial and personnel choices have been made based on the fear of what the Murdoch media will say. Certainly when I worked there most recently, a couple of years ago for a few months, it was discussed in the newsroom that you wouldn't tweet anything, for example, that might get picked up by the Australian newspaper and give them fodder to criticise the ABC more. So their campaign against the ABC has been pretty impactful. Wow. Um, That's unlike, yeah, anything I've encountered in the media in my career, at least. Yes. In Australia, you know, we're very laid back. We're very, you know, we've got a high standard of living, but it's a conservative society. It doesn't appear to be that way, but it is quite conservative and the status quo rules and anything that mirrors that seems to win somehow. Another bit of odds and ends that I wanted to ask about was just that the Australian bushfires did dominate global media for quite a chunk of time. And I'm just curious if, I mean, did you write about that at all? Did it affect your life at all? Did you have any brushes with the fires? Uh, It affected my life enormously. So the big fires, the people stranded on the beach, that was very close to where I live, about two hours away. It's the coastal region that people from Canberra go on holidays. So a lot of people have got very strong connections to that region. You know, they've got family members living there. They have holiday houses. They go there in the holidays. They're ingratiated in the coastal communities. People from Canberra who've worked in the media and politics will retire out to those communities. So there are very, very strong links. So we suffered the physical impact, which was a huge amount of bushfire smoke. And that was all around New years and for the first week or two of January, air quality was really terrible. We literally couldn't go outside. And also the psychological impact. It really deeply affects you on a cellular level, I think, when people in your community are being impacted to get messages on Facebook saying, oh, my sister's just lost their house or my parents have just lost their house. It really does something to you to know how vulnerable you are, but also that people who are in your realm are being affected in this way and you have absolutely no control over the situation. 
I think my community is quite fundamentally changed because of the impact of the bushfires. And the other thing is that we know that it's not the end. We know that it'll just keep happening year after year after year. Bushfires are a really vital part of the Australian landscape. In fact, in all newsrooms, summertime means bushfire season. So there's a lot of planning that goes into how newsrooms deal with bushfires. You know, you do training throughout the year. There's a lot of protective equipment. Everyone has a go bag under their desks because you never know when you'll be called out to cover a bushfire. I never have. But when this was happening, I was looking for stories that I could report and I was looking around for ancillary stories I could report and I came across Indigenous practices, so Australian Aborigines who lived in the land for 40,000 years before the European settlers arrived. They had worked out ways of living with the land and one of those was developing backburning practices. So when you think of backburning, you think of a fire that just burns indiscriminately, but they were very discriminate with how they burned. So I did a bit of reading, was really interested, pitched the story to Time magazine. They came back and said no. And then a few days later, they said, actually, this has come up in a conference call. We could give it to someone in-house, but you've pitched it, so we want you to write it, which was absolutely amazing of them and the exact email you want to receive as a freelancer. So I did an interview with a man called Victor Stephenson, who's basically leading the charge when it comes to Indigenous burning. And I spoke to a few other experts and I found it to be a really interesting story. I like to think that I've contributed to what I hope is a real strong push to centre the practice of Indigenous burning into how we manage fires down the track. Of course, I'm not an expert. There are other people who are experts, but it all just sounds very logical to me. And I'm really pleased that I had the opportunity to do this story. I would say we should move on to talk about more stories. Would that be all right with you? Yeah, sure. So I usually like to start with a story that got away, a story that didn't pan out for whatever reason. Maybe it never even got out of the idea stage, but you either weren't able to prove it or you couldn't get an editor to bite on it or a reporting trip went horribly wrong, a story that you were never able to quite put out. This is kind of reflecting back on what I said earlier about risk. So this was a risky story, but when I kind of weighed up all the different elements, I just thought on balance it's worth taking on a bit of risk to do this story. So a friend of mine is the photographer Polomi Basu, who's Indian but now lives in London. And one day we were having coffee and she said, oh, I was meant to go out to central India, but my trip got cancelled because my fixer died. He was murdered. He was killed. And I was like, what? So the context is that in central India, there are large swathes of it that are controlled by Maoist guerrillas, separatist Maoist guerrillas. And it is a story that everyone is itching to report, but it's just the degree of difficulty in reporting it is too high. For example, spending potentially weeks trekking through a jungle where you might never get to meet any of the Maoist leaders or the guerrillas who are involved. So not many people report it, but all foreign journalists are desperate too. So that's what she was talking about. She's actually recently released a book of photographs called Centralia from this region. So her fixer that she was talking about was in a small town where she was meant to go back to and take some photos and document what was going on there. And at the time, India was kind of steadily rising up the ranks of the number of journalists killed, you know, and the, the reporters without borders count. I think it was like in the top five at this point, and no one really knew why all these journalists were being killed. And when you actually dug deep and looked at what was going on, a lot of them are coming out of this particular region. And that's because, well, I'm told they were getting involved in local conflicts and because everything there is so deeply polarised and everyone's suspicious of each other, it's 
not uncommon for journalists, for example, to kind of become quite partisan in those conflicts. So this is apparently the story here, why this particular journalist, this fixer, he was working as a journalist locally, why he was murdered. So I was like, oh, that's actually a potentially really interesting story. So Polomi put me in touch with a friend of this fixer who was a photographer working in the largest city, which is about an eight-hour drive away. I rang him and he said, oh, look, if you're interested, I'm actually going out to that region during that long drive in about three days. If you get on a plane the day before and come out to Ranchi, you can come in the car with me. And I was like, oh, I don't know who you are. This is potentially really risky. And then he said, I've already got a PhD student from Harvard with me as well in the car. And he said her name and she's Indian. And just by chance, I knew her brother. So I thought, actually, this is not that risky. I could probably do it. So I immediately started casting around for a publication who would publish the story. And the flights, it was going to cost me about $300 for the flights to get out there and then just some small amounts to actually live for those maybe four or five days I'd be out there in this very regional area. So whatever commission I got, I knew I needed to cover the cost of the flights. So I approached an editor at the New York Times. So at the time they had this India blog called India Rink, and that was their way of trying to get in to India and report on it in a way that they could circumventing all the regulations and foreign publishers and they were paying a hundred dollars a blog post and it was actually that's just like wow yeah that's, yeah that's crazy nothing. yeah it's nothing but a lot of journalists were actually going to them and writing long features just as a way of getting into the new york times they could put that in their cv and whatever so i approached the editor of india Inc. and i thought well i'm happy just to get a hundred dollars as long as they cover my flights and she was like oh yes yeah, straight away like she said yeah this is definitely a story that we want But she's like, just give me a day, I need to check in. So I didn't book the flights, thankfully. And then she came back to me a couple of days later and said, I'm going to have to say no. And I hadn't approached anyone else because I thought if I can get this story into the New York Times, that's a big deal. She came back a few days later and said, actually, I've been thinking about it. They're not going to cover your flights. And if you get into trouble, no one's going to bail you out. No one's going to help you because you're just a freelancer. So she said, because of that, I'm going to say no. And I only had like a day or two to get another commission to actually get out there. And in hindsight, I probably should have just sucked it up and gone and done the story. But I was just so wary about taking on the cost of reporting this story and also the risk and potentially never getting published. I didn't do it. And I really regret that, though. (laughs) You know, that's the problem when you're a freelancer. There's the gentleman's agreement where you don't approach multiple potential publishers at once. You just approach one and wait for them to come back and say no. And that just throws your timeline, your scheduling completely out of whack. Yeah, or puts you in a spot where you have to do it completely on spec, which is another very stressful situation to be in, to be reporting something out and not even knowing if it's going to be published, which especially if you're putting your neck on the line, if it could be really dangerous, is you got to be sure there's a reason for doing it. So yeah, that's tough, but wow. The part about the payment does remind me of an era when I was working at a magazine and I wanted to get out. I wanted to do some different pieces to help me with changing to a new job, getting noticed, all that. And so I went to Myanmar for nine days and I did a couple pieces for the Atlantic and, you know, they only paid me 150 bucks, I want to say. And I was glad to get the pieces out and get the clips. 
But those pay rates are just, I do not see how it works unless you're just a freelancer willing to barely break even or even lose money just to get the clips. Like, I don't understand how that works. And I, I remember specifically, I had an interview with this activist, one of the founders of the political party of Aung San Suu Kyi. And I had interviewed this guy who was ancient at the time, Win Tin. He was kind of an iconic figure in Myanmar politics, and I wasn't able to use it because I couldn't figure out how to fit it into another story. I was mainly going to do a broad story on Myanmar politics. It just didn't come together. But then I forget, six months later, I believe, or nine months later, he dies. And so I have this exclusive interview with this guy not long before he dies. And I go to foreign policy and I pitch to them and they say, oh, yes, blah, 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 we'll do it. But then they say, oh, actually, we pay less for Q&As. This way we would just want a Q&A. So we would only pay you 100 bucks instead of 200. And I basically told them, go fuck yourselves, pay me the normal <laughs> rate or I'm not doing it. Like, you know, go find another interview with this guy. Good luck. And so, you know, just having to fight for an extra hundred bucks, uh, such a bad situation to be in. But it totally is. And it's so exploitative and it exploits people who are hungry and adventurous, but it also exploits people who are desperate and vulnerable. And in your case, the investment in getting this person to interview is worth a lot more than $100. The words don't even matter. It's the access, right? They should realize that they're paying for the access and what having that person in their publication means for them, how it makes them look. But for them to come back to you and to say, oh, $100, bang, take it or leave it, that's, that's unacceptable. But unfortunately, that's the reality. And I think that's why journalists now more than ever, we really need to organize on a global level to fight for our rights and to fight for the future of the media because information is an absolute pillar of governance and democracy. And without it, yeah, we all know what happens, especially now. Yeah, I'd be curious to know what some of these places are paying now. But then I'm also glad to be in a position where I don't have to know that information, because I'm sure it probably hasn't changed too much. But yeah, I mean, uh, at least I got three stories out of the trip. I, I broke even, but all I did was break even. I definitely couldn't make a living doing that in the form I was, you know, the parachuting in to a country for a week. I always thought of it as an investment in my future. And in some cases it paid off. I mean, yeah, for me in Myanmar, I would say it was a dual purpose. I mean, I was kind of looking around. I'd been in China for a few years and I thought, oh, Myanmar is opening up. Maybe it'll be the next big thing. Maybe it's the next China and I need to go get on the ground level. And I was able to break even and also go there and see that, you know, I was not going to move to Myanmar. Like it was... <laughs> Not, it was nowhere on the level of the China story. It's very interesting there, but it's still relatively a backwater and the relative level of interest, it was experiencing a spike at the moment, but compared to China and India, Brazil is much lower, which is an interesting phenomenon, the varying levels of interest in different countries and just finding that there's much less interest in smaller countries and even the amount of interest in China versus Brazil is very, very different. And just that one determinant means so much in terms of the interest level of editors and readers and the types of stories you can do, I find at least. I was just going to say, I find like, for example, in China, you say Australian media is cut way back in India, but I don't know if this is still the case, but I remember going, some Australian official came to China and I was sent to cover it. 
And suddenly I discovered there was way more Australian media in China than I'd ever heard of. And like they all were crowded into this room and I was shocked and surprised. And I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they're putting their resources one place. It's probably China. And Absolutely. Actually, Australian media outlets have been investing more in their presence in China. I think all major media outlets would have a correspondent there. And I think the ABC, I mean, they've just sent one of their top journalists to be the bureau chief in China. So there's a lot of investment. China is really making inroads into Australia in different ways, economically, politically, even in our real estate. So Australia really does see China and Australia's fortunes as being quite intertwined. And then, uh, yeah, I guess if you could pick a story you're proud of that you've done in your career and just walk us through from getting the idea of the process of reporting out all the way through start to finish. Oh, okay. I've got two. When I worked at the ABC, I put in quite a lot of effort into getting an interview with Benazir Bhutto. So Benazir Bhutto was a pretty iconic Pakistani prime minister in like the 90s. And then because of internal politics, she got kind of toppled. And when I was working at the ABC, she was staging a bit of a comeback. She was trying to take on the then President Musharraf and regain leadership. There were elections coming up as well. She was assassinated not long after. But for some reason, I just thought, oh, I really want to get an interview with Benazir Bhutto. That would be really cool. So I'd been alternating between being a producer and being on air. And I'd done a lot of the chasing during my hours as a producer. And I'd never gotten anywhere with getting an interview. So I kind of put it on the back burner. And then one day something happened. It was like the lead story in the bulletin, but Michelle had said something or done something, taken her on in some way. So I put in another call. I said, we'd like to interview her. Put the phone down. Didn't think anything more of it. Went into makeup, went into the studio. And then as I was preparing for the bulletin, my producer goes, um, Adi, we've got Benazir Bhutto on the phone for you. And I was like, what? So I pick up the phone, I'm in the studio getting ready to get on air, and it was Benazir Bhutto. So I very quickly did a pre-recorded interview with her, and that went to air. I managed to get it into the bulletin, but just because it came out of absolutely nowhere, I just felt like that was this really great coup. The second story I want to talk about, though, was for Monocle, I think in 2011. So the war had recently ended, and... Sri Lanka was starting to invest pretty heavily in its infrastructure and try to attract outside investment and, and all of that and build up various different sectors of its economy, including tourism. So one of the things it had decided to do was to invest in President Mahinda Rajapaksa's hometown, a place called Hambantota, which is on the south coast. And it's pretty remote. Like it's about maybe a six-hour drive from the capital and even though it's the coastal region that a lot of tourists like to go to, this particular part is kind of untouched and remote. The Sri Lankan government was building the country's second international airport there and it just started breaking the ground for that. It was building a stadium in preparation for hosting one of the world's cricket tournaments. It was investing very heavily in its port as well, a deep water port, and doing a few other things, but those are the main things. And China had invested very, very heavily, particularly in this port. And I remember reading a few lines about it in an Indian newspaper where a very respected journalist referred to Hambantota as the next Singapore. And I thought, oh, that's really strange. You know, I was quite interested in Sri Lanka. I'd been there a few times. And I was like, I've never heard of that place. And for it to be touting itself as the next Singapore, that's, that's wild. So mm -hmm. I, I hit the internet and I found out all this stuff that, Sri Lanka was investing very heavily in it. And there are a lot of questions about it. Like, why would they build an international airport there in a remote area where no one lived and there was no investment and there, were, you know, there was nothing, there were no factories? Why not somewhere like Jaffna in the north of the island? And, of course, that's political, right, because Jaffna's full of Tamils and the government had just 
won its war against the Tamils. So I thought this is a really interesting story. It kind of fit that monocle brief of stories about regions that presented opportunities. In fact, the section I was pitching for was called Outpost Opportunity. So I pitched it to the foreign uh-huh. editor and he said, yeah, no, not interested. And I don't do this very often, but I said, look, Steve, really, you need to reconsider this. This is a really big deal. And he was like, yeah, no, we don't have the money. I was like, okay, fine. And then um, fast forward a few months and he came back to me and said, oh, so tell me more about Hanban Totem. Turns out he'd been in London. He'd been at some global investment fair, got chatting to the person in the Sri Lankan desk. And when he described the magazine, they looked him in the eye and said, I've got a story for you, Hanban Totem. So I felt very vindicated. So yeah, I got sent (laughs) off to this region. There are a lot of logistical difficulties as with anything, but I ended up interviewing the local MP who turned out to be the son of the leader. So that was quite a coup. And I got into the port. I got into the, well, I saw the airport from a bit of a distance. I got into the cricket stadium. I got this amazing access, all areas to all these places. And that story went ahead and talked a bit about the war, but, you know, mostly talked about investment in this region and how strange it was. People over the course of the next few years kept coming back to me, journalists, old friends, and they'd say, that was the first time I'd heard of that region. That was the first time. It, it was all underwritten by the Chinese. Did I mention that earlier? That was that was the yeah. key part of I it. I mean, the, um, the port, but, I mean, the Chinese had their fingers in all of these different things, I thought. I mean, I, I remember reading stories about this place and how China was investing in all these illogical infrastructure projects there, yeah. Yeah, it was just really strange. Like, you'd be driving through and you'd just see all these Chinese signs, the, a huge number, probably about three quarters of the workers, and all the, the heads, all the... Um, bosses were all Chinese. We now know that that was kind of the start of the Belt and Road Initiative, China's big kind of push to invest in all these regions. And there was also a very strong geopolitical element with India because India is very, very frightened of the way that China seems to be investing in all these projects and all these ports. Like if you plot them out in a map, you can see it's literally encircling India. And India has a term for it. They call it the string of pearls theory that kind of posits that China is looking to pull the chain and strangle India at some point in the future. So, yeah, I didn't kind of realise the importance of that story back then when I was doing it. But now I I look at it and I think, actually, that was the start of what we now know is a much wider strategy that China seems to be employing around the world in its quest for global primacy. Yeah, wow. One Belt, One Road, I would say, is finally starting to peter out, but probably for a decade it was a big deal. I mean, now countries are starting to wise up that they shouldn't take on too much debt from the Chinese. I mean, certain countries in Eastern Europe, I recall, and probably elsewhere have kind of gotten into trouble where they could get the financing, but that didn't necessarily mean they should get the financing and it would come to be a problem later when they had to pay the money back to the Chinese. So yeah, that's great that you were on top of the start of this big movement. So the next part is what I like to call the lightning round, which might be a little bit cheesy, but I haven't come up with a better name for it. It's more rapid fire questions. So do you feel ready? Sure. Go for it. Okay. First question. What is a must read publication that you look at almost every day? The New York Times. Got a second one. I'm sick of the New York Times. <laughs> um, so I, I read certain publications, but more to the point, every morning when I get up, I just go through all the newsletters. I get a lot of newsletters from Australia, but mostly abroad. So they come in overnight. So I'm just going to go through some of them. I get 
the interpreter, the Law Institute's interpreter newsletter. I get The Economist Today. I get the Medium Daily Digest. I get a newsletter from a Australian media organisation called Crikey, which is an independent news outlet that's pretty widely read in political and diplomatic circles. The New York Times, of course, I get the, the daily briefings. I get Reporters Without Borders. I get Muckrack, the Washington Post, a fantastic newsletter called The Hustle, which is technology and digital news, foreign policy, that's a really important one to me. And a few from India, one that I really like is called Broadsheet Daily and another one is called The News Brief. So yeah, I rely really, really heavily on newsletters. They've kind of replaced the morning radio news bulletin for me. I mean, that's quite a few of them. So I imagine you look through the headlines real quick and read whatever catches your eye. Yeah, I just scan and I look for similarities. Like if a story is being reported by two or three or more, then I know that that's like the story of the day. And then what is a publication you read, listen to or watch just for fun? So it can be any medium of journalism. I've got a child, so I watch a lot of children's TV. But for my own pleasure, I tend to turn quite a lot to SBS On Demand. SBS is that broadcast where I started my career. SBS On Demand is their website that's like a repository, like a library, and it's got amazing world movies and really great TV shows from around the world, including like The Handmaid's Tale. And once you sign up, it's free. You don't have to pay for it. So I quite like that. And then what is the best journalistic article, piece, again, whatever medium you like, that you've consumed recently but has to be journalistic? So I'm actually going to be very truthful and a little bit lowbrow but also highbrow at the same time. I read a piece in the New York Times a few weeks ago. It's called A Royal Instagram Mystery by a journalist called Katie Weaver, which basically tracks the growth in followers on the Kensington Royal Instagram account. That's the one used by the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, Kate and William, and it compared it to the Sussex royal account, like the growth in followers on that that account, you know, Meghan and Harry. And it charts how they grew in lockstep, but really suggests that the Kensington royal account might have been manipulated so that followers are bought. And if you're into following the royal scandal of the feud, it's really delicious reading. It's really scandalous, but in a modern way, it's like white mischief, I think, but it's online and it's contemporary. And the way it's written is just, oh, it's it's so much fun to read. Can I read a like one line from it? Sure, go for it, definitely. <laughs> this is a tale of two social media accounts, both alike in dignity, yet cast as star-crossed competitors on Instagram where we lay our scene. That, of course, is like that iconic line from Romeo and Juliet. So they've got all these references all the way through the piece. It's such a fun read. Yeah, I mean, just hearing the headline, it's one of those stories that just this hearing it, it would be irresistible to click on and read. And then the next question is, how do you manage your work-life balance? Badly and with great difficulty. So I <laughs> feel like I'm split three ways. You know, I'm pretty heavily invested in being a parent, a hands-on parent. I am also very invested in my study because I've wanted to do this for a very long time and I feel like it's also building my future career as well. And I also really love writing and freelancing, but that takes a lot of investment in terms of time where that time isn't monetized, like researching ideas, pitching ideas. You don't get paid for that bit. And I'm also a night owl. I work best late at night, but I have to be up at seven to get my daughter ready. So my sleep suffers a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I could be a bit better 
with time management, I suppose I could structure myself better. And motivation as well. That's really hard to come by when you're yeah. freelance. You know, you don't have your boss standing in front of you, looking at you disapprovingly, tapping their watch. Your time's your own to structure the way that you want. So that means that a lot of people structure it badly and I, I fall into that category, sadly. And then my next question is, is Twitter important to you? <laughs> I'm on Twitter constantly, but I have a real love-hate relationship with Twitter. You know, there's nothing that makes you feel worse, especially when you're a journalist and you think that people take you very seriously to, like, shout into the void. And that's what I feel like I'm doing a lot on Twitter. And I don't ever write anything provocative enough to get an instant reaction, I suppose. Yeah, Twitter can be quite a lonely, alienating place. I've learned how to use it now where I engage very selectively with people and I don't ever get too personal which I'm very happy with a lot of people do do that just to get the attention but I still and I I feel like it is vital to talk directly to the wider community but yeah I'm very cautious not to get overwhelmed by it or take it too seriously. And then the next question is if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career who would it be? I don't know about trading places, but someone I'm very envious of their talent is Taffy Brodessa Ackner. She's the profile writer, I think, with NY Mag, or she's freelance and she's written a book. She just has such an incredible eye for detail. You know, there's really telling details, like your subject might be saying one thing, but their body language or their twitches or their nuances tell the actual story. And she picks up on that and she conveys it in an affectionate, lighthearted way that isn't going to upset or alienate her subjects or the readers. And it's entertaining. It's not bitchy or snarky. It's just really gently, very delicately done. I I just think it's, she's got such a talent. I'm quite jealous. Wow. What's her name again? I'm a big New York Magazine fan. Taffy Brodessa Ackner. She wrote that cover profile of Gwyneth Paltrow. She recently did one on Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah, that one. And yeah, de- I definitely read the Gwyneth Paltrow piece. I remember reading that. Do you agree? Do you think it was quite cleverly done? Like it wasn't like this huge takedown piece, but it just kind of gently poked in all the dark places and it articulated what it is that people are uncomfortable with about Goop. Yeah, no, I thought it was really good. And then what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Early on in my career, one of my colleagues very surprisingly to me, said that I had a talent for getting interviewees, like Benazir Bhutto. I don't see it as a talent, but my view on that has always been that I assume that people want to talk to me. And if they say no, that's not really a no. It's just like, convince me. So I've always focused my energies pretty heavily on trying to get access and trying to get interviewees. And that's paid off quite a few times. But I don't think that's a talent. Like I said, I think it's just an attitude. I also can be quite dogged. And I think you have to be when you're a freelancer. I don't like letting go of story ideas that I think are really strong and really solid because they're also really hard to come by. So why waste them if one publisher says no? And I'm also focused on a part of the world that very few, at least Australian journalists, have expertise in or even interest in, which is both a plus and a minus because I don't feel very employable (laughs) because potential employers might look at my CV and go, oh, she's interested in India, she's focused in India. We don't care about that. We want China. We want someone who's good at rural issues or whatever that's more Australia-centric. But I maintain that India is a pretty vital part of the world or South Asia is vital and it will become more vital in the years and decades to come, so we shouldn't ignore it. 
what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? I feel like I made a lot of mistakes in my early career, but one of them was I feel like I was too timid in some circumstances and I would go back and tell my younger self that the job of a journalist is not to reinforce the status quo but to keep questioning it. So even if it was really hard and really embarrassing, but just to keep at it and to keep reinforcing my point, whether it be to colleagues or to interviewees or potential interviewees, that what I was asking or what I was saying had value and had merit, even if it wasn't what they believed or, you know, had their trust in, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. That does. I mean, I think it's a, an issue for a fair number of young journalists. Yeah. Um, and it is, I, it's so, so hard. And I totally recognise that. I've never really had very much job security. And when you don't have job security, it makes you timid. It makes you scared because if you put one foot out of line, you potentially lose your job. You potentially lose your source of income. You potentially lose not just your livelihood, but also your vocation. And that's really something that I've struggled with, not just the loss of income, but if I'm not working as a journalist, who am I? What am I? What's the point of me being here? So it's really easy to fall into the trap of being too scared to keep pushing against the accepted wisdom. But at the same time, I think when you're young, you get away with a lot and you don't realise it at the time. And people who are older than you have a vested interest in not telling you that they have more agency than you know. So that's something that I would tell my younger self. And I tell younger journalists that now. You have more value and more agency and more meaning and more power than you think you do. A good bit of advice for young journalists. The next one is, what is your favourite film, book, TV or other type of media about journalists and why? So how many people do you ask this, say, Spotlight? <laughs> Too many. If I had to guess, eight out of 20. It's it's honestly in the last two or three, I think, all said Spotlight. So it'd be great if you had something other than Spotlight. <laughs> I have lots other than Spotlight, but I'm going to say first, Spotlight really annoyed me. Not because it wasn't a great piece of filmmaking and about my industry, but what really annoyed me was, you know, that scene where the victim came to the team and said, guys, I've been telling you this for years. I've given you all the evidence. You've ignored it. Do you remember that scene? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, that really annoyed me because I thought that's such a gift. You've got people who are handing you all this knowledge and all this discovery on a platter and you've ignored it. Like, I've done investigative work and it's a real hard slog and it's extremely difficult and you are constantly chasing all these little things that lead nowhere to be given a story. And also as a freelancer where you fight for every story and every story idea, to be given that and to squander it, that really annoyed me. But anyway, that aside, I read a book years ago that I really loved. It's fiction. It's called Not Untrue and Not Unkind by a journalist turned writer called Ed O'Loughlin. So it's fiction, but it's basically a fictionalization of his own experiences as a freelance foreign correspondent in Africa. I, I found myself just nodding the whole way through it because a lot of the things that he encountered, I encountered as well. He presented this great term, bigfooting. So when something happens, like civil conflict breaks out, as happens a lot in Africa, all the freelance journalists who are there kind of pounce on it and report. And then you get like the big staff journalist from the organization he comes in and he's like okay I'll take all of that work but you can go now so it's like the big star comes in and all the freelancers are just forced to either minimize their presence or stop working and that's happened to me so I could relate to a lot of what he wrote but it's also a really beautifully written book another one is called The Imperfectionist by Tom Brackman have you heard of that one no can't say it's it's again fiction and it's set in Rome and it's about a wine news service I think loosely based on an earlier 
iteration of the International New York Times, so that back when it was like the International Tribune or International... International Herald Tribune, I yeah. think. So each chapter is a different person in the newsroom and it just kind of paints this quite holistic picture of what it's like to work there, but also, again, great stories. Great. Those are great examples that are not spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> and then the final question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? It's connected with my studies. So last year I did a course in negotiating crises and we did a simulation of the United Nations Security Council. And it was the only time I've ever felt like, apart from journalism, that this is exactly what I'm meant to be doing. And I ended up taking quite a leading role in the simulation. I absolutely loved it. And I know there are a few organisations around the world who do that, who negotiate in either domestic conflicts or international conflicts. And, you know, both sides of the brain are engaged. There's just so much strategizing. I've realised that I love to win. I've never realised that before, but in this particular exercise, I realised that I really needed to win it. I just felt so engaged and so passionate about it. I think that's something that I'd love to do. So if anyone knows anyone at the Henry Dunant Centre, please send them my way. What is, what is it called? It's the Henry Dunant, I think. D-U-N-A-N-T. That's just what they do. I think it's based in Switzerland. So they'll be called in by governments or by the United Nations or something to broker in these high-tension negotiations. Yes. Wow. That would be a hell of a job indeed. And yeah, that's all of our questions. So thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Artie Bedegary, a freelance journalist in Canberra, Australia. I'll post links to some of Artie's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would also be a huge help if you write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. I love to get feedback directly from listeners too, so feel free to send me an email at foreignpod at gmail.com as well. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, May 17th, when we'll be celebrating our one-year anniversary. No big deal or anything. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Foreign Correspondence.